if there's anything that's true about uh, biblical narrative, it's that it is relentlessly spare, hmm. right? Especially as a modern reader coming to this text, uh, there is, there's just precious little there. We, we're coming away with all kinds of questions. Well, wait a minute, what about this? Or what, what was exactly was the tone of voice? Because that, that sentence could go about three and a half different ways. Um, you know, we just have questions and the spotlight is so like sharply focused. Uh, and there's other stuff happening in the room that we're just not told about. And so it's, it's so spare. And I think some people may interact with scripture and these narrative portions of the Bible, deciding that that uh, sparse way of telling the story uh, is is a way of putting boundaries up, mm. and you know, like, and this this is all that matters. This is all that you should you know think about mm-hmm. as you interact with the text. I would disagree with that and say that. Uh, that more than that, it maybe it's a maybe it's an invitation to enter the story ourselves uh, as a reader. Maybe it's an invitation to uh, to enter the story as a storyteller and imagine uh, what what is just true. If if like it is just to read the text, these narrative portions of scripture uh, strictly quote strictly only allowing what's on the page to be what's real Mm. it's just false happy whatever day of whatever month and whatever year it is that you happen to be listening to this welcome back to episode two of season two of the show though i think that's actually episode like 251 or something like that anyway if you did not listen to the episode from a few weeks ago on abortion, you should just really hit pause and go back and hear that. It was it was a doozy. It was a lot, and um, a lot of good feedback there. Now, I think overall that most people really have a very high, high, high level of some of the stories in the Bible that they don't really lean into it and try to find new meaning and new depth. And then I think we do a disservice when you know we watch these movies that are massively grand, right? And we watch, uh, you know, these these huge series on, you know, HBO or AMC or FX or whatever, where we can just immerse ourselves into a story that we have maybe read, but that we never really took the time to sit with and wrestle with and nest into it. And the Bible is stories like that. It is full of stories like that, that are all over the place, really. And so that's what our guest Justin Gerhardt has done today. He has created a podcast called Holy Ghost Stories where you can kind of nestle around and hear some stories from the Old Testament. And there's a beautiful story around why the podcast exists. And there are also just some amazing episodes that he has in his catalog. And it has become one of my favorite things to listen to, though I will say I have to listen to it in the right setting. And you'll hear me mention that in the episode. So let me know if you do. But... I'm really excited to present this to you because I like talking to other podcasters, but specifically, I love what Justin is doing. Like That is not an advertising pitch. I have told other friends about this show. And if you're listening to this and it happens to be before October and you live in the Texas region, he will actually be coming to my hometown and doing a live show of a couple of the episodes. 
and they're not crazy long, you know, 20, 25, 30 minutes at the most. But I think that that would be worthwhile and something that I'm a bit jealous that I won't get to come and see, but that's okay. So I'm going to stop rambling because it's hard to describe exactly what he does. And I think that the best person to do that would actually be Justin. And so here we go. Justin, welcome to the podcast, man. Um, I think it's like been four or five months. I am the worst at, um, I'm the best at taking a break in the summer. When I say I'm going to take a break, I am all in on that break. Um, so thanks for your patience with me. And, oh, I'm so um, glad to uh, finally connect. Yeah. After your needed uh, rest, well taken. It was very good. I didn't sleep a lot, but it was good to literally, I, d I don't think I touched this computer the entire time I was on break. Like I had no, no per good. I had no reason to. So it was fun. There's more than enough computers at work to go around. So there's no reason to touch one here. <laughs> when you try to explain, you know, what a Justin Gerhardt is, what is that? Yeah. Uh, so a Justin Gerhardt is a, Oh man, a, so I'm a, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a student of, uh, the world. I think one of, one of my defining qualities is curiosity. I cannot turn it off. Uh, and I have no desire to. And, uh, so big, uh, big fan of learning and discovering and trying anything new. And I'm a father of two uh, beautiful, uh, strong daughters and a husband of one incredible wife. We've been married for 22 mm. uh, years this summer. And uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and these days I, uh, I, I spent 20 years in ministry and then a year and a half ago transitioned into uh, full-time uh, work with Holy Ghost Stories. And mm. I continue to feel like um, I robbed a bank and no one is coming for the money. And I'm so <laughs> excited. I feel like I'm getting away with something. <laughs> Podcasting is fun. It's addictive. I think it's yeah. addictive anyway. Um, and most like, and like most drugs, you do have to rehab for a while. So eventually, hopefully you build in better breaks than I did. Do not go <laughs> five to seven years without a break. Don't do it. It's not, I couldn't, it's not healthy. Um, so yeah. So why then? So I want to break apart some of that. So why would you surrender a vocation? Cause I guess that's what people say, you know, I have a vocation to do, um, ministry. And so why would you surrender a vocation as a pastor to do that? <laughs> Well, I think uh, as I was trying to process all of that, as it was happening inside of me, um, you know, in my heart and in my head, uh, I was doing a lot of unpacking with my wife and uh, with a friend of mine who is further along in his uh, journey of life and, and pass was further along in his pastoral journey as well. A uh, good mentor of mine. And he heard me like ramble for about, I just rambled for about 12 and a half minutes and stopped. And he said, well, what it sounds like is that you've been released from a call. Mm. And that made a ton of sense to me um, and has been the way that I have seen that transition because uh, that 20 years of, of pastoral ministry preaching, uh, I loved what I was doing. I always felt like that's exactly where God wanted me. It's where I wanted to be. Uh, it's like he had me in a room with the door closed and I didn't even notice that the door was closed because I loved being in the room. Mm. And, uh, and then it was like the door swung open 
And I don't know that he was pushing me out. Um, he might have eventually if I had uh, stuck around <laughs> uh, much longer. But it was like he just opened the door and, and I noticed there, there was a hallway out there and it, it led to somewhere interesting. And it felt like permission to to explore, mm. uh, something else. And so, uh, so that's what I did. And, and it just, it, everything, all of my enthusiasm, which I always had a ton around, uh, located ministry, uh, had just, just like gone white mist, nothing there. Uh, I wasn't burned out. I wasn't mad at anybody. It was just like, I could not see ahead. And then all of a sudden over here, um, there, my, my energy was, was just fizzing. I just felt like there was all this potential and I, I didn't even know what I wanted to go do, but I knew it was just tell some of that old, uh, truth and share some of those old stories in some new and interesting ways. And, uh, and so that's what became Holy Ghost Stories. Yeah. So why ghost stories then? Like, are you like, were you raised on the campfire, you know, back in the day you sat on your grandfather's knee? Like, what is like, why ghost stories? Like why approach it from that direction? Well, I think as soon as you as soon as you pull people around a fire, the the stories are better, right? Mm. Uh, and ghost stories are just fun. And Holy Ghost stories worked on about five and a half different levels for me. For one, uh, you know, uh, these spire, these these stories are are breathed out uh, by the by the Holy Spirit as I see them, uh, the Holy Ghost, and everybody in them is dead. And so, in that way, they are in fact ghost stories. And then also. Um, the Old Testament is where I'm always located in these, and it is famously gritty and shadowy, um, dark and, and uh, you know, a bit creepy, weird, mysterious, all of that. And so I felt like Holy Ghost Stories uh, took all of that and kind of grabbed it into a, uh, a fun package. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the feedback when you said, all right, church, this is my last Sunday I'm preaching. And then next week I'm not preaching anymore. Instead, I'm going to go do this podcast thing and y'all should listen. Like what was, cause so well, for it was worse, it, it was worse than that. What was Cause it? Cause I, I was like, this is my last Sunday. Uh, I am, I'm going to explore the world of sound and beauty and the arts. And I want to bring people into fresh encounters with God and his word. And, and that is all I have for you. Uh, I <laughs> end I of sermon, five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, my dad's like, Oh, okay. You know I mean? The church was like, okay, you know, we, we bless you on your way to follow the Lord into whatever he's leading you into. But, uh, I thought, man, what am I, you know, these, these parents who, like, you know, I have grandchildren who are under your care and mm. they need to eat because uh, it wasn't like, <laughs> oh, I'm, this company is going to pay me to to start this thing or anything like that. It was just a, it was a 100 percent pay cut into, uh, you know, uh, just walking into the into the unknown. Yeah. And we knew that it would be a while too. you know, uh, six, 12, 18 months before uh, before any of that was was uh, clear or before there was, uh, there was any, you know, uh, revenue coming in to make it a sustainable livelihood or anything like that. But it just felt so like it should have been super terrifying, but it felt very easy. It felt like we were on a conveyor belt and we were just looking around like, Oh, are we still moving in this direction? We, huh. we are, huh. huh? Uh, and I think, uh, 
God blessed my wife through all of that with mm-hmm. a lot of peace. And she was one of the, one of the, I think just as, just as much as I was, you know, wanting to head in that direction, she was wanting me to head in that direction. Um, so it was interesting what he was doing. We didn't know, we didn't know what, and we didn't know how, and, and we knew that we were like, okay, this is going to be a drastic pay cut. We're going to have to, we're going to have to make our life work somehow. we got a little bit of savings to, to pad things, but we're going to have to take our, you know, our day-to-day expenditures down by like two thirds. How can we do that? And the way that we discovered was one of uh, the easiest ways was to leave the United States of America. What? Where do you, are you in the United States of America now? We are right now, but only newly back. So the last year and a half, we spent traveling slowly around the world uh, in, in all kinds of places because, uh, which it was funny, like we did that and everybody was like, so Justin quit his job. They're traveling the world. How long did it take to play the lottery before you like yeah. you hit yeah. it? How much you were know? we and paying they, him? I was at right. the business meetings. Exactly. I remember exactly. voting. <laughs> was he embezzling? I remember a couple of years that were shot. Are we still no, solvent? Um, Somebody look at the checks. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I understand that confusion, but the but the fact of the matter is, and this is you know this is true before this uh, last little spate of inflation here, uh, the U.S. is just famously expensive. Uh, It's an expensive place to live uh, for a few reasons. And we just realized, man, we could go somewhere else. And originally it was, well, let's go to, you know, places like uh, the first place on our list was Kuala Lumpur. Mm. Uh, We're going to go to Malaysia, you know, some of those places in Southeast Asia, really uh, cost effective. And uh, anyway, we thought wherever we can be, we can cut our, our living down, you know, staying in an Airbnb, uh, they do like 40, 50, 60% monthly discount sometimes on the daily rates. And oh, if you stay that, for we'll like a month. house up for, yeah, exactly. Huh. Uh, or more. And, um, and we put our house, we said we put our house up on Airbnb, uh, here in, in the Austin area and, uh, cover our mortgage and also, you know, even cash flow if we can get it, you know, to a certain occupancy level. And, uh, and then, you know, so we've got housing taken care of and, and seriously reduced. And then uh, we sell our cars and make sure we just live places with good public transit or small enough to be walkable. Mm. And then we make sure we're in countries where we can benefit from the whatever national health care they have available to visitors. <laughs> when you start messing with lodging, transportation and health care and you have seriously altered your bottom line. Huh. And, uh, and that's what we did. We lived for a year and a half on like a third of what we had been living on in Austin. Huh. Yeah. So I did not know about the Austin thing. Um, I didn't do a whole, whole lot of research on you cause it's more fun to just ask you the questions live. So are you yeah, from sure. Texas or do you just live in Texas? We lived in Texas for 10 years. You're not from Texas. I grew up in, no, I, I was born in, I was like from around, you know, just around, uh, I was born in Houston, but we moved to England for a little while, then huh. back to Houston. Then we were in Florida by the time I was six and then grew up in Florida till I graduated from, from high school. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So yeah. your, so I've had multiple thoughts about your show. Um, and so I've listened to, I've not listened to them all, Justin, there's, there's, um, I have to be in the right mindset. And I thought that driving would be it. It's not it. What is it okay. is bourbon on the weekend. Yeah. And just sit there with the bourbon and 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 listen to a Holy Ghost podcast. Um 
Koiko Stories podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't this weekend. I'm out of bourbon, so I guess I'll have to go to the store and fix that. <laughs> anyway, because um, you're not allowed to run out of bourbon. It's a thing. It's in it's in the New Testament. You haven't made it to the New Testament yet in your in your story. Maybe I should put that in the intro to the episodes. Like, <laughs> hey, time to pour pour your glass. If you're out of bourbon, please stop this. <laughs> Try go, again. <laughs> go to the store and come back before you hit play. So, um where I grew up. So I grew up in Texas. I was born and raised in Texas. Okay. And so um, what you do with the Bible stories is way more liberal. And I don't mean that in the political sense. Like I mean that in like the over-exaggerated sense of like getting into like a Lectio Divina kind of way of reading scripture, that type of stuff. And so what just overall is your general approach like to holy texts or scriptures or whatever? Okay. Is that the end of the question? Yeah. Yeah. Like just because you're, you're leaning way into the story, like giving it, you're, you're adding dressing to it that, that is not normally there, which I'm totally fine with. I'm happy that people call me a heretic. Sure. I could care less. So. Well, I love that you, I love that you use the, that, that, uh, that term Lectia Divina because I see this as a, as, as just essentially an exercise in that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of uh, Ignatian, well, or, or more than a Lectio Divina, like this Ignatian uh, way of interacting with scripture where you uh, employ your imagination and enter the story as uh, a character or as a fly on the wall or as uh, an imagined uh, person who might have been there or whatever, and just sort of stand in the room and smell the smells and hear the sounds and, and look around and, and see uh you know, and, and engage a holy imagination uh, in order to encounter the story in a new and, and possibly, um, you know, uh, illuminating way. I think uh, Ignatius was confident that, that this was not, um, you know, this, this was not a crazy way, I think, to, to interact with scripture and, and, you know, had, had quite a few people who were, um, who were up for that way of interacting with scripture and relating to God among other uh, of his, uh, of what sort of became a Jesuit path. Um, but this is not, so I'm not doing something new as much as uh, I, I'm, I'm doing what makes sense to me uh, when I interact with these stories. I think if there's anything that's true about uh, biblical narrative, it's that it is relentlessly spare hmm. right especially as a modern reader coming to this text uh there is there's just precious little there we, we're coming away with all kinds of questions well wait a minute what about this or what what was exactly was the tone of voice because that that sentence could go about three and a half different ways um you know we just have questions and the spotlight is so like sharply focused uh and there's other stuff happening in the room that we're just not told about and so it's, it's so spare, and I think some people may interact with Scripture and these narrative portions of the Bible deciding that that uh, sparse way of telling the story uh, is, is a way of putting boundaries up. Mm. And, you know, like, and this, this is all that matters. This is all that you should, you know, think about mm-hmm. as you interact with the text. I would disagree with that and say that uh, that more than that, it maybe it's a maybe it's an invitation 
to enter the story ourselves uh, as a reader. Maybe it's an invitation to, uh, to enter the story as a storyteller and imagine uh, what, what is just true. If, if like, it is just to read the text, these narrative portions of scripture uh, strictly quote, strictly only allowing what's on the page to be what's real. Mm. It's just false. You, mm. you end up, with a story that makes no sense. People are doing things that don't make sense. People are saying things that don't make sense. People are not saying things that of course someone would say. Uh, and Yahweh is there thinking and, and breathing and being and caring and hoping and crying. Uh, and, and we're not even told about him. So is it, is it because Yahweh is not mentioned in the, in the book of yeah. Esther is that is that God telling Christians to not mention him when they interact with the book of Esther? Or like, don't <laughs> think about me because I gave you what I want you to think about in the text. Mm. That's just that makes no sense to me. And I think it's a it's a poor, um, sad, boring way of interacting with scripture. And I think what's there is an invitation not to, not to, you know, get all embellishy, like, you know, not to tell the story uh, the way my mother-in-law might, might tell a story. And, you know, like everybody in my wife's family is, is big on, you know, telling stories and not, uh, not allowing the truth to ruin a good story. Right. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. When I, when I tell these stories, I'm imagining what, in many cases, as far as I'm concerned, must have been true. And so you'll hear me say um, the word perhaps, for instance, mm -hmm. many times every episode, mm. right? Yeah. And that's my signal to you, hey, I'm not trying to tell you that this is what the Bible says she was thinking, but I'm telling you, she was thinking something. <laughs> and for you not to think about what she was yeah. thinking, shame on you. You're a terrible reader. Yeah. Right? Uh, and that's not what the stories, you know, like spare telling is intended to do. It's not boundaries. It's an invitation. And I'm just doing what I think more people who have a microphone these days and a Bible in front of them ought to be doing, uh, which is not teaching these stories but telling them. Mm. Mm. What, so what then does someone do that wants to tell a story and they're involved in a church that is not interested in telling stories? They're interested in telling you what to be, like what to believe. Like what is the difference between telling a story about God and believing things about God? I think it's so much of it is experiential. Right. It's, it's, it's the difference between, um, you know, if there's a, if there's a girl uh, that that you're super into, you know, as a as a teenage boy uh, and all you do is learn about her and all you do is watch her and all you do is find out facts about her. But none of that knowledge uh, is, is rooted in experience. You never like talk to her and interact with her and talk to other people about what they've experienced with her. And that kind of, you're just a stalker in the end, right? That's not, 
that's not relational in any way. And I think we, um, we got, we've got to be careful not to, uh, just relegate, relegate the father, the son, the spirit to, you know, just trivia. Mm. Uh, we, we know all kinds of things about him, but there's, and there are things to know about him. Certainly that's a lot of scripture is telling us things about God, but so much of what we learn about God comes from people who found that out by interacting with him. All of the Psalms, we learn a ton about Yahweh through the Psalms, but they're all from people who interacted with him. They're all from people who loved him, who were disappointed by him, uh, who hoped for things and got them, who hoped for things and didn't get them. People who sacrificed for him and realized that it was worth it. Um, people who sinned uh, before him and, you know, yeah. felt the separation that came and then felt the the joy of the reconciliation, all of that, all of what we learn in the Psalms grows out of experience. And uh, outside of the Psalms, you've got this giant, the biggest chunk of scripture is narrative text. Mm. 42% of the entire Bible is narrative. The next biggest type of literature is prophecy and it's 19%. Mm. So more than twice anything else is stories about Yahweh. And I just feel like we've got to, we've got to look at that and think, oh, maybe there's, maybe there's something to that. Maybe he wants us to interact with him and, and through that interaction, uh, then to be learning things about him. And I think he's a, he's a God that's way too complicated to, to get to know in any, with any kind of fullness by just interacting with him yourself. Mm. Yeah. No, Which I, is why yeah. then we get these stories of other people's interaction, right? So that we can receive the fullness of this stereoscope sort of prismatic perspective where mm. I'm not just going on my impressions of Yahweh, but of, of David's and Deborah's and Tamar's impressions as well. And then I start to get closer, a lot closer, not close enough, but a lot closer to some sort of picture and understanding of this infinite God who cannot be understood if we're just, you know, writing down what the epistles tell us about him. Yeah. How much time, and so for people listening, um, it's hard to explain this question won't make sense unless you've listened to an episode of the show. And so you should probably just hit pause, come back and finish this and go listen to an episode of the show. But how much time goes into scripting an episode? Because like your word choices, sometimes I have to pause and look up a word or like the way that you use, like you used, um, we were talking about that Ezekiel episode earlier. Like, um, you use the word like a hurricane of breath or something like that. Like use words in, in sentences that don't really go together usually. But when you think about it, you're like, yeah, that feels that feels big enough to try to metaphorically describe mm. a god big enough to to reanimate bones or you know stuff like that. So, how long does it take to actually begin to narrate and and like insert yourself in, in a way that you can like emotionally write it and get through it and then honestly read it? I've been um slowly re-recording the unspoken sermons from George McDonald and then recording those oh, and I wow. plan to release them all. Now, I'm certain that someone else has done it. I don't care. I want to do it, so I don't give a darn if someone else has done it. Um <laughs> Part of it's because of the sarcasm of unspoken sermons, and I'm going to speak them. I'm certain that they're on YouTube somewhere. I do not care. Um, 
how much time goes into that though? Like, and, and then is your wife aware that you were cheating on her with words? Because you can tell that you really love okay. language. <laughs> well, my wife is an author, so uh, <laughs> this is a, a mistress that we share, I suppose. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> she understands it. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a few ways to answer that. Uh, so uh, like the, the, the time when I sit down to create an episode until the time that the episode is finished and I've uploaded it. Um, and this is not counting sort of like some pre-work that I might have done planning out the season, thinking through some of the bones of some of the stories that I want to uh, explore. But when I sit down uh, to actually begin work, it's about 80 hours total um, of time before the episode's complete. Mm. And a portion of that is, uh, is just interacting with the primary text. And then a portion of that is just thinking out loud initially about the primary text. And then part of it is doing research, uh, some research that, you know, uh, anybody who's studying a passage in the Bible would do with, with good, you know, uh, solid commentaries and journal articles and that kind of thing. But then some research that's just, bananas kind of rabbit hole stuff ancient aliens i see it yeah well you know (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm you know as it's a totally different thing to tell this story than it is to preach this this sermon Mm -hmm. you know i'm saying like there there are things uh that just are far outside the scope of what i ever uh did or should have been spending my time researching Mm -hmm. preaching um, we can maybe get into some of what that involves uh, in a bit, but then after the research, then I'm coming back to the story and storyboarding, essentially what I feel like a good narrative arc is to trace. And I think a lot of these stories come to us. Uh, you you could tell them a few different ways. Uh, that's not to say that you know you make different things happen in each story, uh, but I think a lot of these stories are about five different things. And depending on which of those themes you choose or whose perspective you tell the story from, Mm. uh, that necessitates you following a different kind of story arc. And so I'm doing a lot of storyboarding to try to figure out, okay, if this is my protagonist, what is it that they want? What is it that they need? Uh, you know, and, and how does, how does that want and that need drive the plot forward and what are the scenes that happen. And I'm looking usually for about 10 different scenes that I know will last uh, about two and a half to three and a half minutes of Mm -hmm. narration. Mm -hmm. Uh, And once I've got those scenes outlined, uh, then I start writing and the writing itself. I usually give myself uh, three days of writing. So, so maybe 20, 24 hours mm. of writing uh, total time. And then I hand the the manuscript to, it's about 3000 words mm. uh, in the end. Some, some bump up to 4,000. There's a couple that are 2,500, but about 3000 words. I hand it to my wife uh, and she, she reads it and uh, gives me a good edit usually. And obviously it's not, it's not copy editing. She's, she's, you know, deep editing. And yeah. she just comes back to me, uh, not with suggestions, but with super irritating questions that just make me angry. Mm. Like what do you, uh, like you what? Know, oh, like she'll be like, well, I, I feel like I, I still don't know who Ehud is. <laughs> and I'm like, 
<laughs> that seems like a big problem. Or I, I still feel like I have, I have no idea. Um, I, I cannot relate. I don't relate at all to Hannah. That's the episode that I just did. And, and when I got done with that episode, my wife was like, I don't know who, uh, like, I can't relate to Hannah. She just seems inhuman to me. And I don't like Elkanah. Mm. And so now I've got to take that and, you know, you, you can't, you know, like tell a story with a protagonist that is completely unrelatable uh, and with a secondary, you know, uh, character who is, who you're really supposed to like, and I think should like, because he's great. And <laughs> my first reader just doesn't like him, you know? <laughs> so now I've got to like figure out what's wrong with that. And, and I do the edit and then I, and then I go ahead and record. Usually I don't, I, sometimes I'll show her the edit. Sometimes I'll be like, listen, if this is, if this is not fixed, I can't, I don't have time to do anything about it anymore. It's done. You know? <laughs> so, so then I'd start recording and the recording you're right, man, is, is tough. Um, when it's, when it's, it's scripted, when yes. it's something scripted. It's much easier to go, just talk. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And you know, every sentence like with McDonald, you know, um, of course my, my stuff is different, but similar in that every sentence of both of those things would have been, um, very deliberately constructed. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and for me, I'm, you know, like I, I'm telling the story out loud. The story doesn't really exist to be read. It exists to be listened to. Mm. And so as I record it, I will, I, I, you can say it one sentence, four different mm -hmm. ways mm -hmm. and evoke a different kind of meaning, right. From yeah. it. And then when, once you get into dialogue, then it's a whole other thing. You can, you know, uh, wh what voice am I going to do? And, uh, how am I going to do this voice in a way that keeps people in the story and isn't some, you know, flaccid, boring, you know, like he's just reading. We're yeah. like, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. He doesn't like not, Absalom. He doesn't even like him. <laughs> not what it sounded like, but how do you, how do you, so how do you not get there, but also not, not over. Yeah. Not stand yeah, on the other side of the so, room and yell. So overwrought, and people are like, "Ooh, someone wanted to be an actor," you know? <laughs> uh, and and like, and then keep that voice, whatever you've chosen, yeah. you know, keep it consistent through the episode. Maybe you've got two or three that you're doing. Anyway, so the the recording is a whole thing, and uh, usually, I'm I'm I might say every sentence uh, upwards of six times uh, as I record. Mm. And so I'm just going back again and again and trying it again and again and again. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it'll take me two or three hours to record uh, 30 minutes, uh, 25 yeah. minutes of story. I 100% get that. Um, yeah, I've noticed that your intro and your outro are pretty much usually the same thing. I think they are, at least. They, yeah. Um, I record a new intro and outro for every single episode, and I will legitimately spend 15 minutes on 40 seconds to be like, nope, can't say yeah, that. Yeah. Nope, can't say that. Oh. And the best part is sometimes I'll just let them run and I'll put them up as bloopers. You know, people going, why are you so <laughs> stupid? Why can't you just talk into this no, stupid amazing. microphone? People are like, well, what do you really you have to say a sentence six times to get mm -hmm. it right? No, no, no. If you had a very sensitive microphone in front of your face mm -hmm. and you said a sentence, you would realize, you know, that half the sentences yeah. that come out of your mouth, you're saying a word wrong. You're Correct. dropping a syllable. You yeah. made a weird click with your throat. You know, a little your bit beard of, hair touched the windscreen. <laughs> That's not allowed. Yes, you scratched your arm accidentally during, you know. Yeah. 
So all of that has to be, uh, has to be redone. So then when I've got clean audio and, and I've got the whole narration recorded, then it's a, then it's off to the races with scoring the episode. And so I don't know if you meant, I, I don't think you said out loud yet in this episode. Uh, so for your listeners, every episode of Holy Ghost Stories has a full musical score mm-hmm. uh, behind it, sort of a cinematic uh, score. And obviously that's a, that's a whole thing. Uh, Do you play to, those or you hire that done? So I, I hire that out. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's actually, I subs, I use subscription library mm. music from a couple of, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've got like three different libraries that I subscribe to that I source from with some great stuff from great musicians who are, uh, who are putting that stuff up there. But then, you know, it's, it's all, it, it's not bespoke. And so I've got to find mm-hmm. music that fits every scene mm-hmm. and, uh, and then it's not going to fit the scene, even the best, you know, in the best of worlds. And so now I've got to chop it into a, you know, 17 different pieces. And yep. I want a chord to resolve when it's not resolving. And so I make that happen or I, I mm-hmm. want it to end here and it's not ending. And so I'll make that happen. Or I need, my language. I need to pad the, you know, mm-hmm. pad the, I need two more measures uh, before we get to this, this move in the piece. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll have to make that happen. So, yeah. um, so that's a whole thing. I did have the luxury of working in season two, episode eight. I did an episode, uh, called the lion, the witch and the war zone, mm-hmm. uh, about Saul and the last part of his life where he goes to visit the witch of Endor. Did you listen to that one? I have not, but it's, it's one that when I saw it, I was like, Oh, he either really likes, for some reason, Endor makes me think of Lord of the Rings, just because the word makes me think of that. Um, I have not listened to it, but when I saw it, the the dad joke just embedded in it makes me laugh. Yeah, um, I just thought, well, yeah. why not? At first, it was truly, it only, that title only existed for myself in my document. And, you know, like, well, and then you realize a, the podcast is yours and you can call it whatever you want to call it. As a placeholder title. And then I thought, well, who's going to tell me I can't? No one. Correct. No one. And so I went ahead and did it. And I thought, you know, it's not just a little you know, nod to, uh, to, I was also writing it uh, and, and producing that episode while I was in living in Ireland. Mm. And uh, of course, uh, uh, Northern Ireland uh, gave birth to uh, to our our uh, beloved C.S. Lewis, and so I thought it was a nice little homage. Anyway, it tells a story that episode does of of Saul's visit to the Witch of Endor. Always been one of the most intriguing stories in all of Scripture for me. But I had the privilege of working with a composer, a cellist composer, mm. uh, to do an original score for that episode, and it was just stellar. Because uh, yeah, it was intentional. Guy, this guy was way out of my league and uh, anyway, got, got the chance to work with him and uh, it was just a joy and he did an incredible job and we're actually working together uh, on a Holy Ghost Stories related project that maybe we could talk about if you want. Here. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the part of the show that there should be ads, right? Because we live in a capitalistic world and everything has to get paid for but that's just not the way that I want to do it. So, if you feel led, support the show on Patreon. I do absolutely need you. But if you don't, I'm not gonna put any ads here because I just don't feel like it. Hopefully you do though. The amount that you support will not change the benefits that you get. And so, with that said, let's get back to the show.
I do have a question. So what's the one story that you're like, this one needs words wrapped around it, but I'm also terrified and also excited to do it. Like what's oh, the, the whole life of David, just the whole life of David. Like you just want to yeah. start and then all the way to the end. I thought you were yeah. going to lean into song of songs. You didn't. That's fine. Um. <laughs> no, you know, since this is a, can I, can I say this in church? Say whatever you want. Uh, yeah. Podcast. Uh, I'll throw a little spice in. Uh, I actually, <laughs> so I was writing the Esther episode, uh-huh. you know, and I was like, you know, the, the, the one night with the King thing. And, you know, I mean, the whole story hinges on, on her, you know, uh, and, and him coming together, yeah. uh, you know, in a sexual, uh, meeting that evidently goes super well, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, because he chooses her from all this, you know, super well for, you know, for Xerxes, just to be clear. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I thought, well, let me just see what happens and see if I can lean into this particular bedroom scene and write it super graphically and then give it to my wife as just a part of the edit mm-hmm. and pretend that I'm intending, like that's, mm-hmm. that's the episode. Mm-hmm. So it was entirely to just see if, if she would call me on it and yeah. just to freak her out. And she immediately, I left the room she's sitting at the kitchen table reading and I just hear her exclaim. She's like, what? You can't. <laughs> no, no, you can't. She's like, come in here. Anyway, I was like, oh, what? what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I don't, I don't know if you've done Ruth and Boaz yet, but you could also take the same liberty there. It's you know, there's true. a lot of, there's a lot it's of sexual true. tension in the Bible. Um, you know, to be honest, there's, <laughs> we could just keep naming stories yeah. uh, <laughs> with, uh, with potentially graphic content and you know, anyway, I, I try yeah. to, in, in the show notes, I don't know if you've noticed in the show notes, I try to, uh, every episode I have a section that's that just says what's spooky. Mm. And then I just list the, the, you know, salty yeah. content of yeah. that story. You know, there's, there's, uh, multiple instances of dismemberment, you know, a, mm. a human being is flayed alive Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's prostitution or there's sexual slavery or there's, uh, uh, oh man, it just, you know, it just keeps going. There's like statutory rape. I mean, like, and the, the reason I, I do that is because people are like, oh, it's a podcast is telling Bible stories. Let me get my kids and like, we'll cuddle up. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I know that we've made a weird move in church over the years and made Bible stories for children. It's the only time we ever tell the stories and lean into the telling of the stories. Mm-hmm. It's like VBS and mm-hmm. children's ministry and everything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bless us for telling the stories at some point, but uh, these are of course not children's stories. And I just want yeah. to make sure parents know yeah. or people for that matter, who are like, uh, you know, I had to issue a warning before the Tamar uh, in Judah episode that was just like, Hey, if you've got, if you've got a history of sexual abuse, this episode is going to be difficult for you. And you may want to, you yeah. may want to skip it because it's, it's just brutal what she experiences. And I'm always looking to echo scriptures approach where it's not gratuitous, but also it's what it's not shying away from, from reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what life is like. It's not intentionally, um, it's not intentionally in your face. It just happens that 
it's it's in your face, but because it, it, it exists, the same reason that the squirrel was dead outside. Like there's just a splayed out body on the road over there. It just happened. That's it. Yeah, That's yeah. It. And you thought I wasn't paying attention on the Ehud episode. I was. Favorite line in that one is that I think his hand or his arm gets stuck in the belly of the king. Uh, the Moabite king. I think that's. I think that's that story. Like quite literally, like puts his hand yeah. in and like, oh my, we're in it. And and I thought about the X Men for all all like the Blob for some reason. I don't know if you have ever oh, seen that yeah. show or not. That was what I thought about. That that's actually the one that we were driving through on the way to vacation. And I was like, I'm gonna turn this one down. Um, we just we just dialed that. that. Hey, kids. <laughs> and that's when I decided to to crack into the bourbon instead while I'm while I'm listening yep. to the show. Yeah, so so yeah yeah. So what is next? for for you so you've done three episodes or three episodes three seasons um and you have a thing coming up in midland which is actually where i'm from i saw that on your thing yeah i was born in odessa and then raised in midland dad was a pastor so we were up in the northwest for a little bit and then we came back home yeah so what is next for you nice well, so uh, so we're in season three right now, and uh, season one and two, I did 10 episodes. I, I pushed season three out. We're going to do like 15 episodes in season three mm. because I'm I'm still wanting to, to give folks episodes, but I'm wanting to buy some time before season four uh, because season four, which will which will premiere in January, is going to be different. Uh, I'm telling the story of Moses and the Exodus sequentially through the whole season. Mm. So, so far, uh, Holy Ghost stories is, you know, every episode is just a different, a different story from a different place in the Bible, different time, different characters, all of that. Um, it, in no particular order other than this is the one I wanted to do next. And this is, these are the ones that my patrons voted for mm. this season. And, uh, but I thought, man, wouldn't it be amazing to do this? The, some of these stories are just so long form. And mm. the Exodus is one of those. Uh, and it's this the story in all of scripture that's referenced most often by God. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's without, you know, like you just can't argue. It, it is one of Yahweh's, probably Yahweh's favorite story. And it's given so such great airtime and it's told so incredibly well uh, through the book of Exodus. And so I thought, let's lean in to that. We'll do 10 episodes, the story of the Exodus in order. Uh, we'll just track with Moses. That'll uh, allow me to do some fun new things, storytelling, you know, yeah. trace larger arcs yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then the, the big other thing is I'm, um, working with Kendall Ramsour, who uh, is the one who scored the Witch of Endor episode on the whole season. Mm. He's scoring, he's scoring the whole season for me. So you have as to write it all and speak it all so it. that he can hear it and find music that fits, or is it just like he's doing something separate and then no, you find a way to composing. He's composing all of the music from scratch. Yeah. And yes, I've got to work ahead. Yeah. Uh, I took a little hiatus in season three to do some work ahead. I went mm. to Egypt uh, to do on the ground research. My family and I lived in Egypt for a little while, mm. uh, swam in the Red Sea, climbed Mount Sinai, uh, stayed at a Bedouin camp out in the Sinai wilderness and uh, began writing uh, those those episodes there. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, so I've already got four episodes of that season already written. Kendall is working on scoring uh, the first one. Huh. And the idea is if we can, if we can raise enough to fund that whole season, uh, he'll score all 10 and the first one will premiere in uh, January. Nice. Yeah. And so 
I'm just ad-libbing here, but it makes sense in my head. So you have Moses sitting around a campfire with his grandkids telling the story of the Exodus at a campfire, Holy Ghost Stories, from the point of view of Moses. Let me tell you back in the day. Um, That's probably not what you've done, but that's what I hear in my head. And then I hear him (laughs) bickering with his grandkids at Sinai. Like, no, for real, I went up there, I had to argue with God because he was going to kill everybody because y'all can't freaking listen. I gave you one job. More than once I went up there. You can't even make it up once. I don't even like mountains. I don't like climbing. I don't like hiking. And you people... You people made me go up there. I love how you turned Moses into like this this crotchety Yiddish man. Get off my lawn. I, I can see it in the old, in the, you know, his old age. Maybe that's uh, me. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, so that's 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 coming. Yeah, we all do that, right? Uh, I think Moses was me. I think God is me. And what's wrong um, with you people? I gave yeah. you the rules. You can't listen. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, for real. <laughs> For real. Uh, so that's, so that's season four, very excited about that. And then, uh, the Midland thing. So, uh, the very first Holy ghost stories live show is happening in Midland on October 30th. Um, and, uh, it's, it's being hosted by, uh, by a church there in Midland who, uh, was super generous, reached out to me, said, Hey, we want to, we want to do something. Holy ghost stories. What, what, what have you got? You know, they were like, there was something about speaking on the website. We want you to come and Speak. do whatever. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, what I've been thinking about, you know, doing for a while is, is doing a sort of a live experience of Holy Ghost Stories. This won't be like I'm recording the podcast live. It'll be uh, a live experience of uh, two of the stories mm. that I've done, uh, but it'll be really special. We'll have live uh, cello accompaniment from mm. uh, the one and only Kendall Ramsour. He's going to be joining me mm. and uh and and we'll do that and then we've got folks from the midland symphony orchestra who mm. are coming to help us open the show and that's cool uh, it'll be a really really magical night we'll we'll have some bonfires like lining the path as you walk into the into the church building and uh it'll it'll be it'll be enchanted bonfires in october in texas they're gonna they're gonna give you citations like you can't burn in texas in october <laughs> it's not it's a, it's, it's fine. true we'll it's have fine. folks stationed with hoses to put them out there, like, <laughs> yeah but in midland there's nothing to burn anyway so yeah no yeah trees. um so this question won't come as a surprise to you because it's the question that i ask everyone um maybe it will come as a surprise to you i don't know if you finished the episode and so when you try to wrap words around whatever it is when you say god whatever that is like what is that for you so that's a that's that is a tough question and i think (laughs) words are one of the perfect things to to apply to that question and they are they are absolutely powerless uh in response to that question can both of those things be true at the same time um so i would say what is God? He, he, I, th- I like what the way he introduces himself at the beginning of the Exodus story, right? So, uh, in, in so many ways, you know, the, the Israelites are, are just have been away from him for a long time. His, this is his introduction. Uh, he's introducing himself to Moses, to Israel, to Egypt and to the world. And the way that he introduces himself, the way that he describes himself in that particular moment is, uh, is, is of course, famously with the words, I am. And I love how enigmatic and all-inclusive that is. Uh, I love that 
when when it's when the when that when your question is put to him, his answer is, "What am I? Mm. <laughs> uh, mm. All of it. I, I I am all of it. I am existence manifest, and I think that helps us begin to get a sense of the fullness of of Him. Um, and I think." Uh, I think that's the God that I'm interested in, in exploring. I think, uh, I am says he is, uh, he is the definition of existence. He's the definition of reality. He is the source of all life. Uh, and when I see him as, as that, uh, when I see everything as coming from him rather than like trying to look for I don't know, going, going the other way about, uh, exploring him. Um, I think I get a little closer to, to who he is. So that's like a terrible, probably a terrible answer, but I feel like <laughs> if you, if you're, if your answer to that question doesn't have a, a bit too much bigness and mystery, mm. you might've answered it wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. That's a little bitty God. If you, if you know the answer. Yeah. 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 We have an entire, um, there are multiple versions of the Bible that still don't quite have figured out how to wrap their, their mm. heads. Around. And by multiple versions, I mean, not just 66 books. Like there are multiple Bibles that are doing their best to try to mm. talk about God, um, and still fall woefully short point people where they need to go, Justin, like, what do you want them to do? Um, and say they want to start with one episode, like, where do you want them to start? Like pick here, like some people are completionists and other people are like, no, if you're going to like, I have my own personal two or three favorites when people are like, Hey, out of all of them, which one do I listen to first? And I have three or four that I will point them to, but where do you, like, where do you want people to go and do to the things? So I, I, I'm, I'm low control on this particular question. I think in terms of the answer to your first question, what, what do I want folks to do? I would love folks to just listen to an episode. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, if, if you listen to an episode and it's the last episode you listen to, great. Uh, this It's not for you. Uh, but I would be very surprised if you listen to an episode and it's the last episode you listen to. I'm, I'm that confident, not in my my own anything, but these stories are amazing. And again, I'm not doing anything spectacularly special. I think what I, all I'm doing is bringing storytelling to these stories, which for too long we have brought a lot of didactic energy to these stories, a lot of homiletic energy to these stories, and uh, and, and not enough storycraft. And so uh, I'm, I'm asking us to just sit inside of these stories and what happens when we get inside of these stories is we encounter Yahweh and, and that is addictive. Mm. You, he, you cannot turn away from him. And, uh, and, and when he's just a list of facts or he's, you know, he's the things that you're not allowed to do or, uh, you know, anything like that, of course, like he's, that's very resistible, but this, this iridescent, prismatic God who appears to us in story after story, doing these things, not doing these things, interacting with these people, um, making these moments with humanity, and then making sure that some of the most spectacular moments of collision get recorded. Uh, 
I, I think you can't spend time, truly spend time in those stories and not want more. Mm. So hopefully that's what I'm giving you. So where you start, uh, start wherever you want. I, I would say if I can't recommend the latest episode of Fully Ghost Stories to you, I have I have failed to do a good <laughs> so job. So start there. <laughs> so start with the latest one. A lot of folks, more than I would imagine, go feel like they need to begin at the beginning, which that's a great way to do it too. Um, I think I've gotten, you know, I've grown a bit uh, in the, over those 30 episodes that I've put out. Uh, and if you want to, if you want to benefit from that, you can start at the beginning and go forward. Uh, if you want them to get worse and worse then start <laughs> at the end and go backwards. The podcast is That's... Holy Ghost Stories. <laughs> Uh, there's a website, holyghoststories.org. Of course, it's all it's on, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, whatever. Um, Audible. I've got one person, I think, like somewhere who keeps listening on uh, Amazon, like on their Echo device. Mm. Like somebody, somebody finally did that thing that Amazon wanted all of us to do, and it's like, Alexa, play Holy Ghost Stories. Mm. Anyway, uh, but you can listen wherever. And, uh, and, and I think if you keep listening, then I trust that, that it'll take you wherever you need to go. I, I, am trusting that God is at work in these stories. Uh, his word is alive. I, I really believe that, that, um, the Hebrews writer was like right on, mm-hmm. uh, when they talked about that. And I think you will encounter him in a way that you will not soon forget and you will want more. And, uh, and if you eventually listen enough and you want to you want to pitch in on patreon or whatever then would love for you to do that but i'm so grateful to the patrons for making it free for everybody yeah yeah i would i would echo that i'm just going to take what you just said i'm going to make it this exit intro 100 percent agree <laughs> um yeah patrons make the world go around um yeah and people that patron patronize i i, I use that i mm-hmm. think in the proper way um and pay, pay the people that you like what they do um they're happy with any of it so Justin, thank you for your time tonight. I have no idea what time zone you're in, but I'm well aware that it's later for me. So I assume that it's also later for you, but I appreciate you being on the night, man. Thanks for having me, Seth. Appreciate what you're doing. Do not hit pause. Don't hit skip. Hold on. The show's not over. So with permission, I asked Justin if I could introduce some of you to his show. And so here, right at the end of this show, hit pause if you're not in the mood, but don't delete it. Come back to it. I have episode six of his show called The Breath and the Bones. This one is one of my favorites. And so with his permission, I would like to share that with you. Here we go. A little bit of what Justin's show is, because again, I find such meaning in it. And then we would be done. Death finds everyone. Everything, really. It is inescapable. And it is final. Your death, for instance, is not a question of if, but when. And when it happens, there is no changing it. Or is there? Are those the rules of death? This is a story about life, death's primeval enemy. It's a story about where life, that precious elixir, is found, what it looks and smells like, and how to find it 
when all seems lost. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Poplar trees towers over the landscape, each trunk tall and straight, the branches crowded with glossy green leaves quivering in the muted wind that blows from the west. A poplar's leaves are unique, four lobes, rounded, and the top of the leaf snubbed, like it's been cut off. Further down the trunks, the lower branches of these trees hang heavy with strange fruit, arched, skin adorned with intricate designs, the insides exposed, revealing not seeds, but strings. They're harps. Still further down, at the bottom, a man sits with his back against the trunk staring into the water nearby. They call it the Kibar. It's still and muddy, and it is not a river. It's an irrigation channel, cut like a knife wound into the once dry, desolate landscape, straight as a bronze blade, inorganic, unnatural, and the only source of water for the refugee camp where this man lives. His name is Ezekiel, it's his 30th birthday, and he's thinking of home. Home is Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Hebrews, the place where today Ezekiel would have been officially beginning his work as a priest of Yahweh. If he was in Jerusalem, he'd be donning his priestly garments, adjusting the ephod and the breastpiece, the emerald and sapphire, topaz and ruby, onyx and jasper, glinting in the sunlight streaming into the temple courtyard. But he's not in Jerusalem. This is Babylon, where he and tens of thousands of other Israelites live in exile, made captive by the enemies of Yahweh who'd become the agents of Yahweh because the Israelites had made themselves enemies of Yahweh. It was always there, of course, lurking. Every so often the Hebrews' rebellious hearts would get the best of them. They'd crave the proximity and predictability promised by the idols of the adjacent nations. They'd bristle at the accountability required by Yahweh, and they'd wander. Freedom would turn into slavery as they became addicted to the objects of their affection, money, power, sex, violence. It had happened again and again over the years. 
ever since the genesis of their nation, it seemed. But for a while, it had been out of hand. Corruption, infidelity, blatant idolatry, oppression of the poor, it was everywhere. And for Yahweh, it wasn't just his children sinning, it was their souls slain by sin, murdered one by one by an enemy they knowingly embraced, one child after another, killed, the bodies piled like a mass grave. He had to stop it. And so five years ago, Yahweh stepped in, brought Babylon in all her violent might against Jerusalem, sacking the city and conquering the people of Judah, bringing so many of them, the most skilled, the most educated, east to Babylon, and leaving the rest in Judah to work the land and pay tribute to their new lords. It's hard to know who has it worse, the ones who stayed or the ones who were carried away to this strange land. No, surely them, Israelites like Ezekiel, wrenched from his home, spending every day now longing for the beauty, the familiarity, the life that he had in that place. Watching the sun set every night in ugly, alien, lifeless Babylon. His nation, their dreams extinguished. The whole place so full of death. Is being a captive different than being a slave? Yes. Surely their forefathers had it worse in Egypt, making bricks day in and day out, whipped like dogs by their taskmasters. This is different. But it's not freedom. No one can leave. Most all of the Jews are cordoned off in their own ghetto, on the banks of this ditch. Home fades like a dream, the memory growing dimmer the longer they spend here. Ezekiel and the Jews tried desperately not to forget the holy city, the hills, Mount Zion, the olive trees, the brook Kidron, their families' houses. They tell stories to their children to preserve the precious memories of their homeland. It feels like drawing pictures in the sand. Toddlers now walk among them who've never stepped foot in Jerusalem. How long will this last? Will these children have children who've never seen the temple? Who've never known the one for whom Solomon built that magnificent place? Meanwhile, the Babylonians treat them like a sideshow, their culture reduced to caricature. Ezekiel's noticed that the musicians may have it worst in this regard. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, their captors yell, like telling a dog to bark on command, calling for the songs about Yahweh and their life with him before all of this. What do these songs even mean to the people of Babylon? Nothing. But the Babylonians like how much they mean to the Jews. They can tell the songs come from deep inside of them. And that's interesting. Intriguing. 
It's voyeurism. In spite of it all, they do want to play them. Ezekiel can see it in the musician's eyes. They long for that music. The lyrics heavy with happiness, the notes that sound like home, the chords prismatic and beautiful, like their God. But Yahweh is not here. How can they sing the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land? They can't. And so they've hung their harps in the poplar trees by the kibar in protest, in grief, in resignation. Ezekiel hates the sight of them swinging there, the limbs like gallows. But it does seem right. Suddenly, the sky above the canal darkens. A strong north wind blows through the poplars, the leaves violently dancing to the discordant sounds of the harps as the air rushes across their strings and knocks the instruments against the trees. Ezekiel shields his eyes from the dust in the air and looks up at the sapphire clouds. But it's not clouds. It's one cloud, rimmed with an almost blinding light fire flashes inside of the cloud and at the center of the fire an amber glow Ezekiel can't take his eyes off of and as he watches something emerges from the amber what Ezekiel sees that day he'll try to describe in writing but words cannot do it justice he gazes at this extraordinary sight until it's clear that this is a vision of the glory of Yahweh himself. He hits the ground prostrate. He tries to catch his breath, a thousand questions in his mind, but this one looms largest. What is Yahweh doing in Babylon? That is the beginning of his call. Though he will not serve as Yahweh's priest in Jerusalem on this, his 30th birthday, Ezekiel will serve as Yahweh's prophet in Babylon. It will be difficult, though, says Yahweh. The people, my people, will not listen to you. Corpses are notoriously deaf. Sure enough, they do not listen, and Yahweh almost in response to their refusal, pursues more and more graphic ways of communicating. He has Ezekiel build a tiny model of Jerusalem and stage an attack on it, demonstrating the threat of another Babylonian siege back home if the people don't change. Yahweh has Ezekiel shave off his hair and cut it up with a sword. Ezekiel plays the role of the Day of Atonement scapegoat, laying on his side before the Jews for over a year and eating only food cooked over excrement, a foreshadowing of the horrible sustenance the people of Jerusalem will be forced to survive on during the impending siege. Surely they will change and avoid the fierce judgment of Yahweh, avoid the destruction of the holy city, the temple. But then 
seven years after Ezekiel begins his work as a prophet, an escapee arrives from Jerusalem with the news. A city has been taken again, and this time destroyed, burned, judged. Word is that Nebuchadnezzar did unspeakable things to King Zedekiah and his sons. What's worse, Yahweh informs Ezekiel, the disciplined people still have not changed. The idol worship, the brutality, none of it has stopped. This is when, surely, the last ember of hope in Ezekiel's heart goes black. As the months pass, the messages Yahweh gives Ezekiel to deliver become strange, even for him. He's telling Ezekiel to direct his prophecies to inanimate things, mountains and valleys and city ruins, as if they're alive, or could be, as if they are subject to Yahweh's command, as if they could obey him. Perhaps they're symbols, metaphors. Yahweh clearly has a proclivity for truth taught in pictures. He looks at his world and sees sermons everywhere, truth in fields and on farms, in rivers and ravines, in animals and adoption and adultery. Everything, a lens pointing to a deeper reality. Eventually, one picture will steal the show. One day, the hand of Yahweh rests on Ezekiel. That's how Ezekiel will later describe it. It feels like Yahweh's hand on him. Just like that day on the banks of the Kibar. All of a sudden, he's flying or racing or swimming, moving somehow through space and time, the world rushing past him until everything stops. Ezekiel finds himself standing in the middle of a valley. He's with Yahweh. Is he home? Has the Lord finally brought him home? No, he's never seen this place before. It's just as foreign as the refugee camp in Babylon. But it's worse. Something is wrong. There are bones everywhere. What slaughter field is this? How many animals died here? And how did they die? He's prompted forward by Yahweh, tiptoeing almost, to avoid the bones. There are too many, though. They crunch sporadically under his feet like walnuts. Then Ezekiel glimpses an unmistakable shape. The curve, the twin caves flanking a triangular abyss. It's a human skull. Everything in his body tenses, 
recoils when he realizes all of these bones are human. It's a layered response. The primal reflexive terror of being surrounded by corpses, but also the religious repulsion bred into him early on. Jews become unclean in the presence of a dead human body. But priests, priests are squarely prohibited from any such contact. What is Yahweh up to? The two walk together across the length of the valley with no sign of an end to the littered remnants. It's an enormous mass grave. And then, at Yahweh's urging, they turn around and cross again. This time, Ezekiel realizes how long ago these people must have died. There's no meat left on these bones. Every scapula, every clavicle, every metatarsal is dry, entirely void of fluid, moisture, the smell of decomposition even, any trace at all of life. Son of man, says Yahweh, his voice breaking the dead silence. Can these bones live? What do you say when Yahweh asks you about the future? There are many wrong answers to that question. Can these bones live? Of course not. Neck deep in mystery here in this valley, Ezekiel understands so little. One thing he knows though, dead things stay dead. But this is not a time to plant flags on the tiny hills of his knowledge. This is a time to defer. Sovereign Lord, replies Ezekiel, you alone know. And he's right. Yahweh says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Preaching to inanimate matter again. And still, this is not the strangest thing he's been told to do as a prophet. Strangeness is a hallmark of Yahweh's. Ezekiel noticed that from the beginning. Nothing the way he'd do it. No message, no vision the same way twice. A persistent defiance of convention, of expectation. And along with this strangeness, might. Might greater than his ability to perceive it even. Ezekiel is terrified of Yahweh. And somehow, the times he's been fully aware of Yahweh's fearsome presence are the times Ezekiel has felt the safest. The prophet stands up straight, looks at the chalky shapes, and raises his voice. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He continues with Yahweh's script. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Yahweh.
somewhere deep in the heart of this valley of the shadow of death, a femur carves a shallow line in the dust, dragged across the ground by an invisible hand. Somewhere else, a handful of human teeth, molars and bicuspids and incisors, strewn like dice on the soil, tumble resolutely toward a jawbone. A rattling sound fills the air as clavicles and ribs, vertebrae and ulnas, jigsaw pieces of skull and scattered phalanges bump past one another and eventually collide in orderly arrays. Ezekiel's eyes widen as a sternum, perhaps, crawls across his foot. As they move, the bones come alive. Red and yellow marrow courses through their vacant cavities, manufacturing millions of blood cells. Collagen fibers are endowed with new vitality. Osteocytes awaken and set osteoblasts and osteoclasts to work. The bones are not dry anymore. Skeletons now take form, thousands of them stitched together, prone, the valley full of new shapes, ordered and white, like a field ready for harvest. Ezekiel, trembling now, faces the skulls, their empty eye sockets gazing vacantly up, down, sideways, and continues the prophecy given to him as Yahweh looks on. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. He winces a bit, no doubt, at the thought of what is apparently about to happen. At the sound of his words, Yahweh's words, pink tissue wraps itself layer upon layer around the bones of one skeleton after another. How many are there? 50,000? Twice that? The sounds are now wet, squishy, as myofibrils woven together on some unseen loom form muscle fibers. Muscle fibers wind into fascicles. Fascicles wind finally into muscles bound by membranes of silvery connective tissue. Acetylcholine gushes from the cells, allowing myosin to bind with actin so that the muscles can contract and move the nascent legs and fingers and lips. But there is no movement yet. They all lie there, limp. Ezekiel looks on, transfixed, as now the flayed corpses are clothed. Keratinocytes multiply and spread like floodwaters across the expanse of muscles. The dermis first, and then the stratum basale, followed by the stratum spinosum, the stratum granulosum, the stratum lucidum, the stratum corneum. Let there be skin. Melanocytes materialize, saturating each epidermis, tinting it the color of olive wood. With the skin come nerve fibers and blood vessels, hair follicles and sweat glands. The hurricane of creation persists, one fully formed body and another and another and another. It's astonishing. But Ezekiel can't help but notice there is no life here. 
not as such. The prophet stands beside Yahweh, surveying what can only be described as a horde of cadavers. There is no breath in them. Yahweh speaks again. Prophesy, son of man, to the breath. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live, Ezekiel calls. The sleeves of Ezekiel's robe flutter and then dance. The leaves of the trees on the mountainsides flanking the valley quiver as the wind blows from the west and east and south and north. The breeze becomes a gale whistling through the valley, dust and grass and beetles swept up in the tempest. Ezekiel shields his eyes, squinting behind a raised forearm as the gusts get stronger and stronger. At his feet, the mouth of one of the bodies opens drinking in the wind. Its nostrils flare as if newly inhabited. In the corner of his eye, Ezekiel notices its fingers twitch, flex, grasp. Ezekiel's mind possibly flashes back to the stories his mother told him as a child, the stories of a garden where Yahweh breathed and brought dust and bone to life all around him the lumps of bone and flesh and skin begin to stir. They push up on their knees, and then, as armor presents itself on their chests and thighs and weapons and shields appear in their hands, they stand, blinking, breathing, alive. Human beings, awake and animate, able to sing and cry and catch fireflies and warm their hands over a campfire and hold a baby and fight. All of them are outfitted for battle, a vast army. Ezekiel, surely his heart already brimming with fear and wonder, feels something new as he stares in awe at this endless expanse of soldiers. Dread. The last time he saw a force like this, it was the army of Babylon sweeping into his home, ferocious and brutal, the instrument of a jealous god. Ezekiel's heart races. What terrible judgment does Yahweh have in store? Son of man says the voice, replacing the sound of the rushing wind. These bones are the people of Israel. What? They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Can Yahweh change the rules of death? What about what his people have done and 
who they've become? What about the choices they've made and the idols they've exalted and the shame they carry? The assassin they've invited into their arms. So many of them have left Yahweh and it's been so long. It wouldn't be one resurrection. Israel at this point is a mass grave, their souls beyond rotten, empty of any trace of life, like dry bones. The army stands before Ezekiel, inhaling, exhaling, making eye contact with him. Something rises inside of the prophet, something dormant, unfamiliar. Hope. And then Yahweh says this, a message to his people, to Ezekiel. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Home. And then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh. Yahweh, the one who gives life, the one who will bring his people home where life awaits. Ezekiel sheds a joyful tear. It cannot come soon enough. Years from now, Ezekiel will find himself still in Babylon, still watching the sun set every evening by the banks of the Kibar Canal, still hundreds of miles away from his precious Jerusalem. He doesn't know it yet, but he will die in this place, in this same camp next to this same ditch. Would it break his heart to know that? Would he feel betrayed? Perhaps. But a couple of decades after his initial calling, Ezekiel aged, certainly, but still strong. He'll find that Yahweh shows him one final vision. It's a river. It flows from the entrance of a temple. It's not the temple Ezekiel remembers. The waters stream down through the landscape of Judah and into the desolate Dead Sea Valley. As the river floods the valley, it gives rise to myriad forms of life, foliage and flowers, schools of fish, trees of all kinds with year-round fruit and medicinal leaves fluttering in the breeze. Ezekiel will watch in awe as Yahweh shows him the home he remembers and longs for, but better. The Dead Sea, alive, verdant, teeming, the center of a new Eden. It looks, it looks like a good place to sing. Where is this exactly, this new temple? He's got to go there. It's perfect. 
the kind of place where life eclipses death, where what he saw in the valley that day could actually happen. Surely it's Jerusalem. This is why he's longed for it, dreamt about it, prayed toward it. But then Ezekiel is given the name of this new garden city, this wellspring of life. It is not Jerusalem. Named after its defining quality, it's called simply Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh is there. That night, Ezekiel lays his head down and listens to the breeze rustling the leaves, the frogs singing on the banks of the kibar, the harps bumping gently against the trunks of the poplars, making strange and beautiful sounds as they're played by the wind. The whole place, so full of life, almost as if Yahweh is there. Now, I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet, and I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now for you... I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon.